Hello, my friends, and welcome again to the Bible Lab, the podcast where we explore major themes from every book of the Bible in order to see how each page points us to Jesus, who he is, and what he's done. I'm your host, Andy Wood. Thank you for joining me. Friends, today we're going to begin an examination of the book of Revelation. Uh, Before we do, just a couple of things to remind you of. One, uh, the primary text that I use for almost every episode, and I will be using for all of the episodes covering Revelation, is the book, What the New Testament Authors Really Cared About. So highly recommend that you guys go and pick that up. It's a really, really solid book. A couple other things to remind you of. One, if you haven't yet done so, would really appreciate if you guys would rate the podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you're listening. It's a huge help to the show. If you have any kind of social media accounts, uh, we'd really appreciate if you would share those things uh, with uh, friends and family, let people know about us. And finally, we do have an email address, BibleLabPodcast at gmail.com. So if you have any questions or comments or anything you'd like for us to cover, we'd love to hear from you. So let's go ahead and orient ourselves in sort of the stream of New Testament history before we jump into the book of Revelation. So uh, our New Testament timeline, the author of Revelation, as we'll talk about in a moment, is the Apostle John. And he becomes a follower of Jesus very early on in Jesus' ministry, likely around AD 30. We know that John is with Jesus for the entirety of his ministry as one of Jesus' 12 apostles, but John is actually one of the inner circle, Peter, James, and John. These three disciples are the ones that Jesus was constantly calling away to come with him on the Mount of Transfiguration or in the Garden of Gethsemane. So John was really up close and personal with Jesus throughout his ministry. Uh, So we know that the death and resurrection of Jesus happens in AD 33. Another couple of dates for us to keep in mind as we move forward in history. Nero, uh, the emperor of Rome who put to death both Peter and Paul, he reigned from AD 54 to 68. Another huge event in New Testament history is the destruction of the Jerusalem temple in AD 70 at the hands of the Romans. Uh, The next sort of milestone that we want to keep in mind is the reign of Emperor Domitian. He reigned from 80, 81 to 96. Now, as we've mentioned several times in this podcast, the, the persecution of Christians in the Roman Empire was not a constant thing. Sometimes there was very little. Sometimes there was a lot. It depended on where you lived. It depended on who the governor was. It depended on your family and your employer. So persecution was an up and down kind of thing. When the emperor Domitian came to the throne, however, persecution was turned way up all across the Roman Empire. Empire. Domitian was a brutal dictator and he ruthlessly oppressed the Christian church. It's during his reign that the gospel according to John was written, likely sometime in the mid 80s. And it's during his reign that John wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, probably from the church at Ephesus where John was stationed. And it's Domitian who exiled John to the island of Patmos where John wrote the book of Revelation. Uh, The book of Revelation is the last book written. It is the closing of not only the New Testament, but all of inspired scripture. So let's get our bearings in Revelation. Who wrote it? Friends, I'm going to tell you it's John the Apostle. There are other Christians much smarter than me, and they're going to say, they're going to argue for someone called John the Elder. I think it's simpler, and it's, to me, much easier to believe that it's John the Apostle who wrote this letter. He wrote it to, first and foremost, seven real churches in Asia Minor. But beyond them, obviously, he wrote it to all Christians everywhere. When was this written? 
likely in AD 95. Like we said, John probably died a few years, maybe a few months after writing this, but this is the last book added to the Bible. Uh, where? John is on the island of Patmos. He's in exile. Uh, island of Patmos is in the Aegean Sea, which is east of, think of Asia Minor or Turkey. The Isle of Patmos is in the Aegean Sea off to, my apologies, to the west of Asia Minor. And he wrote it to the seven churches, seven real churches in Ephesus, Smyrna, Thyatira, Pergamum, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Why did John write this letter? Well, it's not to confuse you. John did not write this letter to spark arguments and confusion. He wrote this letter, first and foremost, to strengthen the faith of Christians as they faced persecution. So as John writes this letter, Christians all over the world are facing persecution for their faith in Jesus. And so this letter was intended to serve as an encouragement to endurance. The second reason John wrote this letter is to reveal that Christ, not Caesar, not Domitian, to reveal that Christ is the true sovereign of the universe. Christ rules right now over the universe. The rule of Christ exists now, though it is invisible. We've talked about that a lot on this podcast, the idea of the already and the not yet. Christ is already reigning, but he's not yet reigning in his fullness as he will be one day. One day the rule of Christ will be visible to all And one day, the rule of Christ will be shared in by all believers. One of the things that we want to talk about before we dive into the themes of the book of Revelation is how you can interpret Revelation. I probably don't have to tell you that Revelation is one of the most contentious books in the entire Bible, if not the most contentious book, when it comes to the proper way to read and understand. So I want to outline three basic approaches for us, and I think that Christians of goodwill can hold any of these three, although I will tell you uh, I I find the last view to be the most persuasive, and that's kind of the view that I'm going to take primarily. But what are these three methods of interpreting Revelation? The first is what's called the preterist approach. The preterist approach says that the book of Revelation is symbolically representing real people and events that took place in the first century. So what the preterist approach wants to protect is the often present temptation for Christians to view Revelation as entirely future tense or present tense and forget about those first century Christians that John was writing to. So there's a lot to be said by remembering the fact that John's original readers had to benefit from the book of Revelation before you and I can. So the preterist approach is the first way. A second way is called the futurist approach. The futurist approach is basically the exact opposite of the preterist approach. The futurist approach says the book of Revelation symbolically represents real people and events that will take place in the future. Not only the future from the perspective of the first century, but the future even of us in the 21st century. Now, the futurist approach, friends, takes many shapes and sizes. I'm I'm very much generalizing here. But This is the basic concept that once you get out of Revelation chapter 3 or maybe Revelation chapter 5, basically the rest of the book is future. Now, again, there's much to be said about remembering that there is a lot of future tense things in the book of Revelation and that Christianity is not only a backwards looking religion, looking back to the death and resurrection of Jesus, but also a hope forward, hope filled religion. The third approach, the one that I most lean towards, is called the symbolic approach. 
The symbolic approach says the book of Revelation, with a few exceptions, is not about real people and events in the past or in the future, but rather it's a symbolic depiction of the universal and since the Garden of Eden, all-time battle between good and evil. It's a symbolic depiction of the spiritual realities that all believers face, spiritual realities like spiritual warfare and persecution for the sake of Christ and our future hope in Christ. Now, let's make sure you understand something. When I say symbolic, I don't mean made up. I don't mean a fairy tale story that's not real. Symbolic approach means that true realities like the reign of Christ, the reality of evil, the reality of persecution, and the return of Christ and the defeat of evil, these true realities are being depicted using symbols that people can understand. So when I say symbolic, I don't mean false. I don't mean fairy tales. I mean symbols depicting true realities. So what we're going to do as I teach through this is a combination, trying to cherry pick and take the best of all of these three methods. And we're going to say that John used symbols to make connections with real people in the first century. Remember, this book was not written and then put in a time capsule for 2,000 years and dug up by Christians in America. This book was written to real people facing real persecution in the first century. And the preterist approach helps us remember that. Now, these same symbols, though, are going to find their ultimate fulfillment in the events surrounding the second coming of Christ, which is still in the future for us. And these same symbols provide ongoing encouragement to all believers. So whether you're listening in America, whether you're listening in Nigeria, whether you're listening in Germany, the book of Revelation is intended to show you that Christ is reigning. So hold on. He's worth it. So one thing that we're going to do before we close out this episode is I want to talk about something that's called the millennium. Now, if you don't know what the millennium is, it is the most argued about passage in this most argued about book. The millennium is talked about in Revelation 20, 1 through 6. So let me read to you Revelation 20, 1 through 6. It says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or on their hands." They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison. And they'll come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But the fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now, I hope as we read through the book of Revelation and as I teach the book of Revelation, a lot of those symbols 
like the beast and the false prophet. We'll get to them. We'll, we'll explain who those people are. But I want to talk about the millennium here uh, because I think it connects with basically how you read the book of Revelation. And just like there are three basic approaches to reading the entire book of Revelation, there are three basic approaches to the subject of the millennium, which, as one witty pastor said, is the thousand years of peace that Christians love to fight about. So the first position is called amillennialism. And amillennialism is the position that I hold to. And let's just be honest, the fact that there are three positions that have been argued for and against for 2,000 years means that really Christians can hold any of these positions and that we're not going to know until we see Jesus face to face which of these, if any of these, is right. So I personally am an amillennialist. Probably many of you listening, probably most of you listening and most of your pastors would be pre-millennial and maybe even some of you are post-millennial. And I want to kind of indicate where these approaches differ, but I most importantly want to show you where these approaches line up and agree with one another. So what is amillennialism? It is the belief that the millennium that we just read about describes the present spiritual reign of believers with Christ. Amillennialism says that Revelation 21 through 6, when it talks about Satan being bound and Christ ruling with the saints who died for the testimony. That's describing the age of the church from the falling of the spirit at Pentecost until the return of Jesus Christ in the future. That thousand years is not a literal thousand years, but a symbolic depiction of the perfect amount of time. Amillennialism says that when Christ returns, believers will be resurrected, unbelievers will be resurrected, all people will be given new bodies, judgment will come, unbelievers cast into hell for eternity, and believers dwelling on the new heavens and the new earth for all of eternity with Christ. In other words, it all happens at the same time. There's obviously some pretty big holes in this theory There's uh, that we're not really going to go into. I'm not going to poke holes in any of these theories. I'm just going to tell you this is a biblically defensible position to hold, and I think there's a lot to be said for it. The second position, probably the most popular in the church today, but not always the most popular, each one of these theories has had its, its day in the sun, is premillennialism. Now, premillennialism is going to be most closely tied with the futurist approach of reading the book of Revelation. And just like there are many futurist approaches, there are many different flavors of premillennialism. So I'm going to be generalizing here. Premillennialism says the present form of God's kingdom is moving towards a climax. So premillennialism says that we are living right now in the church age and a tribulation will break out. So what's going to happen is that believers will be raptured off of the earth before the ultimate and final tribulation comes. The first after the 7 years of tribulation, the first resurrection is going to occur. And all those who are living here on earth, the dead in Christ will rise. Christ is going to reign on earth for a thousand years. After that literal thousand years, Satan will be released from hell. He'll be unbound from that chain. He'll gather the unbelievers still living on the earth during the reign of Christ. And we will have what's called the battle of Armageddon. Then there will be a final resurrection where all people are resurrected and raised. There will be a final judgment, and then Christ will reign over the new heavens and the new earth. Now, I want you to notice something. A lot of the events that I just said are also pre present in amillennialism. What happens, though, is that in premillennialism, these events are broken up and they happen at different times, whereas amillennialism says they're all going to happen at the same time. But what do we see? 
We see a literal return of Christ. We see a literal resurrection. We see a literal final judgment. We see a literal recreation of the heavens and the earth. And we see God's people reigning with him forever. Right? So again, a lot in common here. The third view, probably the least popular of the three views, or at least the least present today, is what's called post-millennialism. Post-millennialism says the world is going to be Christianized. So the, we're living in the church age, post-millennial people would say, and they say that the gospel is going to advance and spread, and not every single person on the planet will become a Christian, but so many people and so many nations will become Christianized that there will be a long period of peace, a thousand years, give or take a decade or so. Then Christ is going to come, then the resurrection of the dead will happen, then the final judgment, then Christ's eternal reign over the new heavens and earth. And again, what do we see? We see the same elements. We've seen a literal return of Christ. We see a literal resurrection, a literal judgment. We see a literal recreation of the heavens and the earth, and we see a literal reign for all of eternity of God with his people. So any of these three positions are legitimate and biblical positions to hold. Now, I know you're going to find this hard to believe because we've been talking about it for about 10 minutes, but understand that there are roughly speaking 300 verses in the book of Revelation, and 10 of them deal with the millennium. So you might not agree with amillennialism, and that's fine, but I hope that we can find much to agree about and much to be encouraged by in the book of Revelation. This is not a secret code book relating to the future. This is a book to encourage me and you, the believers who have come before us and the believers who will come after us, to hold fast to Jesus. He's worth it. So friends, next time we come together, Lord willing, we're going to look at our first theme in the book of Revelation, how John outlines the events of the end times. But for now, my friends, take up and read. God bless.